Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. If you love listening to this show as much as I love hosting it, I think you'll really like the Medal of Honor podcast produced in partnership with the Medal of Honor Museum. Each episode talks about a genuine American hero and the actions that led to their receiving our nation's highest award for valor. They're just a few minutes each. So if you're looking for a show to fill time between these Warriors episodes, I think you'll love the Medal of Honor podcast. Search for the Medal of Honor podcast wherever you get your shows. Thanks. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll be hearing from Colonel Gail S. Halverson, known far and wide as the Candy Bomber. Halverson earned his title for dropping handmade parachutes filled with gum and sweet treats for the children of Berlin during the Soviet blockade. Well, I, I just come back from a, a trip to South America. <clears throat> I was relaxing in a swimming pool at Brooklyn Air Force Base in Mobile with some of my buddies and having a good time. And uh, I was feeling especially happy because I'm almost being ball-headed then. Uh, I needed all the help I get to get a date. And I was able to get a, a, a brand-new four-door red Chevrolet. And I was able to get this from a dealer down in the islands. And uh, he couldn't sell them down there. And uh, after the war, they're... Hard to get in the States, and I was able to buy one. So I was pretty proud. I was in a glow. Peace was at hand. The war was over. Good time at the swimming pool. And then we got a call to, from General, from Colonel Cassidy to say, hey, we got a, a rush pilot meeting, everybody over there in, in an hour. And, and that's how I first heard that uh, blockade of Berlin uh, is occurring, that Stalin was cutting off all supply routes, that they'd already been flying some. Uh, supplies into Berlin and C-47s that need bigger airplanes. They said, we want four years as fast as you can get them. So it was a surprise. Well, yeah, so we thought, you know, things are going to be okay now. We didn't back of our mind had, and had heard and read about Stalin and his, his aggressiveness uh, pushing westward. And it was a little concerned. But here we faced reality. Now it looks like 
man, here we're going. We're going to leave our our comfortable places here and and stake out in West Germany and, and start flying night and day, 24 hours a day. Sound like a little bit of the same old theme that we'd been used to before. We are hoping there weren't going to be any shooting, but we already heard that that a yak fighter buzzing a British transport plane and, and just earlier in April had misjudged uh, his closing uh, rate of speed and uh, both airplanes were crashed and everybody was killed. So we didn't know whether the guy was going to, if we were going to overtly support Berlin against Stalin's desire to starve those two and a half million people, we didn't know what those yaks would do. And, and the, we'd heard the fighter fields were beneath the three air quarters in Berlin and, and they were loaded with fighter airplanes. And of course we knew they must they had ammunition, so there was a concern in the back of her mind. But I, uh, my girlfriend wasn't being too friendly. She was out west in Utah, and, and I was in Alabama, and my handwriting's not too good, and she didn't know that I really cared about her. So I, my, her letters weren't too friendly, so I, hey, I just, well, go on the airlift, as far as my love life was concerned at that time. So I volunteered to go. A buddy of mine, Pete Soa, was supposed to go. He had a new set of twins coming back from Panama, I volunteered to get him off the list and put me on because he would feed us Sunday dinner, me and another bachelor. And his wife certainly didn't want him to go to, to Germany. And that's how I, I got started to go. A little concerned in the back from mine, but he thought it'd be pretty interesting. There were thoughts about helping the Germans, former enemies, who we were trying to destroy each other, trying to kill each other. And now they're asking us to fly night and day to give them food. And Colonel Cassidy explained to us a bit what the political situation was. The Soviet Union was pushing toward the West, looking to take over control of satellite countries. Uh, Berlin was an island in the Red Sea, the focal point inside their territory, and that was the focus of the Soviet drive. They wanted to get rid of that island of democracy, that island of free enterprise, of capitalism behind the Iron Curtain, because they couldn't convince the 300,000 soldiers around Berlin their system was the best when they could go to West Berlin and see the change was occurring. And he explained that to us and said, hey, this is where we draw the line. If we don't draw the line, we don't know how far West Stalin will go. He wants Berlin. The people there, women and children, he's trying to starve them. And that's all it took. Everybody says, hey, let's go. We left on the 10th of uh, July we got there on the 11th of July, 1948, to begin our operations in, into Berlin. When we first got our orders, we, they said, oh, this won't be very long. We just got to go for a little while to, uh, until the, the politicians get their act together, and, and uh, nobody's going to stand in the world for Stalin starving the people. You get a black eye. It's going to be over pretty quick. Don't worry about it. So we had our, our summer flying stuff, uh, we weren't very well equipped, and I took my my red Chevy four-door that, that was my really the apple of my eye and didn't have time to do anything with it. I drove it up under the pine trees outside the bachelor officer's quarters, locked it up, and took the keys with me and thought, well, I'll be back pretty quick. So really, we didn't think, I don't believe anybody thought this thing was going to go on too long. Our last leg going into to Rhine Mine from the States was leaving the Azores, Brest, France, and then into Frankfurt. And we knew there was chaos long before we got to Frankfurt where we could see the airport, tuning in the frequencies for, for control. We, it was just disaster. We tried to call two or three times, couldn't even get in. And so we were prepared for the worst uh, as far as 
traffic congestion, of control problems that were involved. With that, we came into the airport. It was pretty visual. We had to make a letdown, but we had a good seating underneath. There seemed to be airplanes everywhere on the approach, lined up to take off. Large numbers of aircraft lined up to take off at the takeoff end. Some are still the engines running. They changed that procedure later. But uh, it was airplanes all over the field, interspersed with large semi-trailers uh, in wherever the space where they could fit them. So it was a really interesting mosaic that uh, greeted us when we arrived at uh, Frankfurt, Rhein-Main. Well, an arrival uh, after flying, we didn't stop except for gas and something to eat. And we had three crews on on my airplane, and uh, we just just kept coming. But uh, we thought, boy, we're going to get a real reception here. Here we are, pilots with a lot of experience. They're going to be glad to see us. And Boy, the guy acted like that we'd had 24 hours in the sack and and who's going first? And so the, the freshest crew, John Kelly and in our group, was the first one to go. And he said, hey, we'll be ready to, to go to Berlin in about an hour and a half. And so the rest of us wondered where we're going to sleep. And we thought, well, they'll have a nice place for us, you know. Well, all, all the normal barracks were, were loaded. They were filled. There was no place in the inn. And uh, they said, okay, you got two choices. We got some tents that are set up, or we, we've got a displaced persons camp across the Autobahn where we've got these displaced people from all over the world that Hitler's pulled out of their countries and been doing probably slave labor, and they're in some tar paper shacks. Do you want the tents or the shacks? So we said, well, we'll, we'll take the tar paper shacks. We'd have enough tents. So we went over across the Autobahn to Zeppelinheim, and, and they were just moving these displaced people out of the tar paper shacks and trucks loading up their belongings. There's nothing in the shacks except a, a black pot-bellied stove. And uh, that was the scene. So, hey, guys, we got a job to do. Fit yourself into the schedule and, and hope you get some sleep and we'll have a mess hall set up for you near where you're sleeping soon. So that was the situation. We, we very well, very quickly, Decide, hey, man, we're not that important. The important thing is to get the stuff to Berlin. That's the mission. We, we soon got the importance of food in this whole equation. That's what it was all about, Operation Vittles. And one, one of the cases was there was some flour spilled on the ramp from a bag. And, and already they would take the, the little pieces of coal and, and, and sweep them in a place. And in this case, the coal was mixed with flour. And, and this person carried a bag with him. A lot of them carried a little bag with them in case of such emergency and would scrape that into a bag and, and worry about separating it later. And this uh, occurred a number of times. Just the coal in little pieces they'd save to carry away in their pocket. It was, was just amazing. I didn't see anybody stealing stuff, but stuff that was on the ground or, or, or it spilled. They, if they could get it before somebody else did, why, they'd, they'd take it. Uh, the other kind of thing that impressed me a great deal was in, in Rhein-Main in Frankfurt, a midnight mess. Uh, we were coming in from a flight, three round trips, and, and eating. And when it was over, the, the, we'd take our dishes out and clean off anything that was left and, and then put the dishes in another barrel with to be washed. And, and 
As we left, started to leave, I could see somebody come out of the shadows and, and go in the barrel. We'd scrape some of the food and, and, and pull it back out and scrape it out in, in, a, in a plastic bag to take back to a child or a, a wife. Uh, there were workers who, German workers who were there, but uh, we, we coming safe from the States, we didn't clean up our plate all the time. You know, many times we did. But then we learned to do that because how important that food was. Coming into Berlin, uh, the first time, fortunately, the weather was pretty good. We get a visual look at the city and uh, laid out, but I wasn't prepared for what I saw. I'd, I'd heard about Cologne, I'd heard about Canterbury in England, and, and of course seen the, the devastation in London from the bombing, but I wasn't prepared for what I saw in Berlin. It looked like a moonscape. The, the, the walls of the, the buildings were up. You could see right straight through them. No windows, of course. Uh, only one building in five was partially usable. It, it was just desolation. And I said, two and a half million people? How in the world could they live in a place like this? So the first thing was a shock. Where's, I mean, how can people live in this place? And, of course, the same thing was in, in, in Russia, in Leningrad. It was destroyed the same way. And the, the, really the impact of what war had done sunk in and says, wow, if these guys are here, they need food all right. And it just verified the, the understanding we had that this is an important, important to be here. In the quarters of Serb Berlin, there were three, the southern, uh, center, and north. All of them were 20, mile statute, 20 statute miles wide. Of course, Stalin wasn't kind enough to give us a radio fix in the middle there to navigate. He just told us, guys, you get out of the quarter and you're going down. I'm going to force you down. And uh, over east to Germany on the southern route, I can't remember for sure, it's about 120 miles without any navigational aid. But leaving West Germany into the corridor, we had an ILS leg, a very precise navigational aid that would let us kill the drift. By the time we got out of range of that leg into the corridor, we'd pretty well have our, our drift set unless we had a very strong crosswind that, that varied before we got in range of the low-frequency Homer in Berlin. Now, when we were there in early July, we didn't have any radar operational in Berlin when, when I first started getting into Berlin. We had GCA on and off, but, but, but not, not very long. Not, it just wasn't totally functional. We didn't have any long-range radar. So we, we'd kill our drift going into the corridor toward Berlin, and then pick up a homer. We had a, a, a homer, low-frequency homer, and also a radio range in Berlin. And we'd, we'd hope we'd stay within the, the corridor until we picked that up. So, well, I didn't have any qualms uh, about it. I was a little bit concerned. The night flying and thunderstorms at night were, were a problem because we, the low-freak is not very good. Uh, the ILS leg coming in was okay. But then... From there on in, before we got the radar, besides the thunderstorm activity interfering with the Homer and, and the radio compass, the, the Russians set up a, an alternate site on the same Homer frequency. And, and I missed it totally one night through thunderstorm activities, went partway into almost to, to Poland. It's only 30, 40 miles. And finally got turned around and came back in. And that's the night I lost the engine. So... Things were pretty hectic for that night. But we didn't have a lot of qualms about that. We knew the fighters weren't going to give us much trouble in a thunderstorm. 
So we, we knew that if we got out of the corridor in the bad weather at night, that we weren't going to get intercepted because they didn't have the, the all-weather capability that, that, that we had and were used to using in most cases. I'm sure in some of their Air Force areas that they, they had people who were highly qualified in weather, but these fighters were mostly day visual, visual fighters or clear weather night. The aircraft were harassed in the corridor. Uh, the British had a tougher time maybe than we did because Gatow in the British sector is right near, right on the border practically, at the east, and, and they would position spotlights. They could blind, blind them as they were coming around the pattern, and they had spotlights focusing in their eyes. They had ground exercises, ground firing. Uh, you could see tracers at night and this sort of thing, and they were supposed to keep it on the ground or, or very near the ground. So that was, there were, Aircraft exercises in the quarter. But the most common, and there were some balloons with some cables here and there if you, you weren't in the right spot. But the ones that I experienced most was the buzzing of the AC-3s. Our, our quarter went right over the airfields, and they were loaded with, with fighter airplanes. And they'd come up head-on, uh, not all the time, but you, often enough to keep you awake, head-on and peel off the last minute. And again, I remembered that uh, Yak-3 had done that with the British transport in April and, and before we got there, and they both crashed and killed everybody. So I was hoping their depth perception was 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 all right and on target. And the first time we were in the quarter, we were looking for these guys to see if they're going to shoot at us because we're still early in the airlift, and the precedent hadn't, in our minds, hadn't been set yet about what the protocol was of our aircraft access in Berlin. But after we'd been buzzed a number of times, come up under, uh, come up, behind us and come up over, even over our wing and come down the other side. Uh, we, when they didn't shoot, we found out why. And President Truman had put 60 B-29s on the runways and England had said, come on, bring them on. And he told Stalin, hey, you know what, what that capability is, a B-29. You know what we got. Keep your hands off those transports. And after a while, when we got comfortable with these yak, except for their depth perception, well, we enjoyed seeing them buzz around and break the monotony because it was just hours of boredom flying through there. And if, if uh, this guy came by, it was kind of fun to, to, to see him buzz you. Well, flying the corridor uh, into Berlin, we were right over the Yak-3 fighter airfield, the Soviet Union. They had a, a lot of them, and they'd come up and into the corridor. They weren't supposed to be in the quarter. They come in the quarter and, and come head on to you. You'd see that old guy in that fighter coming right to your windscreen. And in the last minute, he'd just pull on up and, and peel off and disappear. And, and we, did, we just hoped that, that he could see well enough, engage it well enough, that he's going to miss us. But we'd be on the controls anyway to watch, track him, determine if he's a little above us or a little below us. And the last minute, if he wasn't going to dock, we're either going to push it down or pull it up. So we were prepared for that. And a lot of my buddies, uh, we'd, it'd be fun to talk about it, but we were concerned whether or not this guy was was good enough to miss us. I know that one one particular night in the middle of winter when it was, uh, uh, they just, we had snow and even gusts popping us around. And uh, I, I got on, was able to get on a, a secondary frequency and just tell them, hey, guys, you saved your life again. Because they're real pros. They they didn't get enough credit after the airlift, I don't believe, the, the important part that they played in making the airlift work. 
And I remember Jake Schufert's, I've always laughed at Jake Schufert's uh, cartoon. Here, here is the Radio Shack. Of course, the Radio Shack's out in the mid between the runways, out in the field, and, and they want to make sure the guys are landing on the runways, not in the shack. But here, here's the, this crew with all they got is a control uh, yoke in their hand and, and smoke coming out all over them. And they're knocking on the GCA door, and he said, would you repeat that last transmission? <laughs> I thought that was great. But these guys were so good that they, they need all the credit in the world. The weather in Berlin in November particularly uh, and low visibility was very bad, and it stopped us. Uh, there were some uh, periods of time, uh, hours and so forth, that we couldn't deliver the goods in Berlin. We, we couldn't because of the weather and uh, severe either icing or, or extremely low ceilings that would be dangerous. And by this time, we're putting a lot of uh, tons into Berlin. We're building up a, a little reserve. We're doing better than the 4,500 tons a day required. So Tunner says, hey, we're not going to kill anybody doing this thing. We've we got to be reasonable. There were times when we couldn't deliver to Berlin. But, you know, we didn't wait till the weather was okay in Berlin to take off at Rhein-Main. We'd take off anyway. Berlin's closed, zero, zero. We'd take off out of, out of Rhein-Main for Berlin. You know, you got an hour and 45 minutes. And, and the hope is that as soon as you can see enough to land that there's an airplane in, in three minutes from that time, three to five minutes from that time, that that thing opens so you can land, there'll be an airplane in the final approach. If you wait till it's clear enough to land, come, it's two hours before you deliver anything. And so I, I really like that. I really like going for the positive, saying, hey, by the time I get there, it might be open. And only once when I took off and it wasn't, I, I, it was well below minimums. I didn't even take a chance. Just poured the coal to it and it got down a little bit below minimums and took it back. When we first got to, to Rhein-Main and started flying to Berlin, the, it was critical to, to get as much tonnage there as soon as possible. We didn't have enough aircraft available, enough crews available, and so we're flying three three round trips a day. Now, three round trips, I mean, I mean, 24 hours, it might be night and half a day. Uh, that would take, three round trips would take about 17 hours. And uh, by the time you unloaded, loaded, and, and uh, got around the horn, traffic control, and the rest, and then you'd have six hours of sleep, if you're lucky at first, to do it again. And when it got more crews later on, more aircraft, it was two round trips a day out of Rhein-Main or, or Wiesbaden. And it was two round trips more than it was three round trips. Just the first one was tough. So those were the times. Now, the people in the north had a shorter distance in the British zone, Fosberg and Sully. And we had half of our C-54s up there. And a lot of people forget to honor Fosberg and Sully for what they did. Now, they could fly three round trips easier than we could because we had a lot longer. And two airplanes in Fosberg could fly as many tons into Berlin as three airplanes in Rhein-Main because the difference in length of the two quarters. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, 
It's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms. And producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. When I uh, first got to Rhein-Main, I thought the airlift would be over right away. And when I saw Berlin from the air, the desolation, I'd heard in history class about the Brandenburg Gate and the Reichstag and, of course, Hitler's bunker. Everybody knew about that. And I wanted to see it. And, of course, landing at Temple Off, you couldn't leave the airplane, let alone go around town sightseeing. And so one day it, I got through with my round trips about noon in, in July, about 17th of July. And uh, my buddy Bill Christian was uh, – flying it, getting an airplane ready to go right back to Berlin with a load of dried potatoes. And I, I thought, crumb, instead of going to bed, it's a beautiful day. I, I better get to Berlin or this thing will be over and I'll never see Berlin. And so I, I grabbed my, my movie camera, uh, hoping I had it with me most of the time, and uh, told my co-pilot, John Pickering, I said, John, get to bed and, and Herschel Elkins, my engineer, because I'm going back to Berlin and get some pictures and I'll be back before we have to start flying again. So go to bed. I jumped on an airplane with Bill and headed to Berlin. I, I had a buddy there in traffic control who had a Jeep and said, I'll take you, see the driver, chase you all over Berlin, get your pictures. Before I did, I wanted to get a picture of the airplanes coming over the bombed-out apartment houses because of a bad approach. And I wanted to get some movies of those. And so I, I went around the inside of the, uh, the barbed wire temple off the opposite end of the field from the terminal. Uh, before I went to the sightseeing to get the, the landing pictures. And inside the barbed wire, barbed wire here, bombed out buildings here, a grass place in between. I was shooting the airplanes. Right behind me was the runway, standing right there, the picture coming over. All of a sudden, I noticed across the barbed wire, about 30 kids, 8 to 14 years old, right up against the barbed wire, looking at me in the uniform that was bombing them three years before. I was wondering, hey, they're going to be friendly or throw rocks at me. But the boy, they were, they were friendly. They were saying, hey, how many sacks of flour you got in this airplane? And, and they were keeping notes on how often airplanes were landing. He said, we've noticed the last two weeks there are more airplanes coming. He said, that's great. And then the little blue-eyed girl was translating. She said, hey, look, the weather's not going to be this good all the time. If this thing's still going on in the wintertime, it's going to be really tough. And that was the thing that really hit me. She says, look, you don't have to give us enough to eat in those times. Don't worry about that. Just don't give up on us. Just give us a little. Someday we'll have enough to eat. But if we lose our freedom, we may never get it back. And those kids were teaching me about freedom in America. I'm supposed to know a new depth that I did really start to realize what it meant to these Berliners. They saw what Hitler did, destroying the country. Their dads and moms were killed, half of them. They knew what Stalin was like. He was right across right across that artificial border. No wall. They could come back and forth. Their aunts and uncles would come over to get in the library to see what was really going on in the world because Stalin wouldn't put in their library what was happening. 
And they told him what it's like. If you go to another town, you got to register the police. Even if it's 30 miles away, you got to register the police. They can't say what they, they couldn't elect who's going to direct. Well, these, these kids really were fantastic. And I looked at my watch. I'd been there too long. I said, hey, I got to run. I got to go. I got a Jeep waiting for it. Took off. Started to run. And a little voice came to me. said, hey, these kids are different. How come? Uh, wow, they got a postgraduate degree in international relations. And they're not out of elementary school yet. They they know what value is. That freedom's more important than thin rations. That something's more important than food. That principle to be free. And those kids know it now. I said, boy, that's fantastic. And then I took off the little voice. Says, hey, that's good, but that's not the answer. And and then I it, it bothered me so much. I was worried about the jeep so much. And this little voice probably, I stopped and said, how come? And then it came to me very quickly. I'd flown to South America, Africa, and many countries during the war and after the war. You walk down the street in American uniform, kids like that in those groups, even though they had some gum and candy, chase you, grab you, shake you by the arm, say, want some gum? Give me some chocolate. But of those 30 kids, not one of them would lower themselves to be a beggar. They hadn't had gum and candy for months, none. And looking at me, American, they'd, no, I must have something. But not one would even hold out their hands, let alone say anything. They were so grateful to have food to be free that they wouldn't be beggars for something so extravagant as chocolate or gum. And it just blew my mind how mature they were. I reached in my pocket, just broke out in a sweat. I hope I've got something. I reached in my pocket and all I had was two sticks of gum. But two sticks of gum, 30 kids, you'll have bloody noses. That stuff's like gold. And, and then, but I said, I just, I'll never see him again. I better give him what I got. So I broke it in two, passed it through the barbed wire. Boy, the kids just went bananas. The ones that got it looked like they got $1,000. And, and the kids that didn't get any were real disappointed. They crowded in. I thought, here comes a fight. But they didn't. They were asking for something. And it was obviously one piece of the wrapper. And the kids that got half a stick carefully tore off the outer wrapper, tore off the tin foil, and handed it to them. And they smelled it. Their eyes got big, and they remembered what it was like when they, when they had gum, and it just blew my mind. Coming out of the states, all we needed, and to see what a piece of the wrapper on a half a stick of gum meant to a kid right then, held it in their hand, put it in their pocket, or kept it in their hand, like it was a precious jewel. Well, I thought for thirty cents I can give them a whole stick and the wrapper and everything, but I didn't know when I'd ever. I'd be flying twenty four hours out of sleep. I don't know when I can deliver it or when I'll see these kids again. About that time, an airplane came over the bombed-out buildings right over my head and landed behind me, and I got a flash that says, hey, if I airmail it, I deliver it tomorrow, and I won't have to lose any sleep. And so I said to the kids, I was a little worried because I didn't have permission. And you know, if you're going to push things out of airplanes, you've got to have permission. But I rationalized quickly and said, this whole airlift's not according to oil anyway. Starving people, what's dropping a little parachute? So I said, look, kids, come back tomorrow if you share it. I'll drop enough gum for all of you to have some if you'll, if you'll share it. So y'all vold, y'all vold, we share. He's jumping up and down. I started to leave. They called me back. We got to know what airplane you are. Every few minutes, there's an airplane landing. We got to watch for the, the airplane. I said, a wiggle of wings, the big 54, when I come over the, the beacon at, at, at the airfield. When you see that, get ready. That's got it. I said, hey, get out of here. Let's start this thing. We couldn't buy much gum and candy. It's ration. So I went to my, when I got back to Rhine Mine a few hours before I had to take off again, I asked them for their ration. And they wanted to know why. And I said, this is what I'm going to do. And they said, you're going to get in trouble. 
And I said, I'll, I'll be responsible. Give me your ration. So they did. And we had a big double handful. And you had chocolate, had chocolate bars. And boy, it was heavy. And it smelled, boy, I just smelled that thing and thought, what did that do to those kids? And then I thought, wow, hit them in the head with that, going 110 miles an hour, make the wrong impression. I thought, what am I going to do this? And then I remember the old handkerchief and the rock trick. Tied three handkerchiefs, broke it up in three pieces, slow it down so the kids could see it. And, and so if they lost one, they wouldn't lose it all. Went back the next day. First time was still dark. And uh, next time, just forenoon, clear. Looked down there. There's those 30 kids right in that open place between the bombed out building and the barbed wire fence right there. They hadn't told another soul. Wiggled the wings of the airplane and they just went crazy. Came over the bombed out building. Their arms were up. Their faces were up. And right behind the pilot seat is a flare chute where emergency flares can be pushed out of the airplane emergency. And the Sergeant Elkins standing between the pilots is right there. And I says, you push it out when I tell you. And just as I, we crossed them, I and pushed it out the flare chute. I was worried that the pilots lined up to take off would see it and report me, give them a tail number. Or we'd drag it across the barbed wire on the runway. But as they unloaded the 20,000 pounds of flour in about 15 minutes, taxied out to take off along the barbed wire, there was those three handkerchiefs through the barbed wire, waving at all the airplanes. And all our mouths were going like this. I said, I wish they wouldn't do that. And old Pickering says to me, he says, hey, those kids know who you are? And I says, no, I didn't have my name tag on. I was non-standard that day. And I had my hat on. They didn't know I was bald. They don't know who I am. And he says, good. Don't, we won't tell anybody. The kids were out there every day waving that week. And we thought, there's a few more kids. Do it again. Do it again. Did it again. Bigger crowd. Did it again. Three times we did it. And then I, 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 the weather was terrible in West Germany. I, I went into base operations to find out what the weather. weatherman didn't come around the airplane. So Ford and Lloyd ran in there to see huge stack of mail on a, on a big planning table, looked at it, and said, the letter said, to Uncle Wiggly Wings, Templehoff, base operations. The Chocolatin Flieger, Templehoff, base operations. Boy, I broke out in sweat, ran back out there and says, we're in trouble, there's a post office full of mail in there for us. And so we quit. We said, no more. We would get in trouble. For two weeks we quit. And then we looked at each other, we saved our rations, said once more, and that's all. So we came back with six parachutes on a flight. Beautiful day, wiggle the wings, went crazy down there, dropped it, and said, that's it. And that's how it got started. We said we were going to quit after our, our, our last big drop of six parachutes. The next day, coming back from Rhein-Main, uh, back from Berlin to Rhein-Main, an officer met the airplane. He came on the airplane, and he said, who's flying this airplane? My buddy's pointing at me. He said, he is. Why? And he says, Colonel Hahn wants to see you right now. And I knew Colonel Hahn, and he was a great guy. But I went to see Colonel Hahn. He says, Halverson, what have you been doing? And I said, flying like mad, sir. And he said, I'm not stupid. He says, what else have you been doing? And then for about 15 minutes, I thought I was going to go home early or get a court-martial. And then he reached down to the counter and pulled out a German newspaper, threw it on the counter in front of me. And there was my airplane with parachutes coming out of it. He said, you almost hit a German newspaper man in the head with a candy bar in Berlin yesterday. He's got this story all over the world. He said, the general called me this morning to ask me about this operation. I didn't know anything about it. Why didn't you tell me? And he said, I said, I didn't think you'd approve it. He said, you're right. I wouldn't approve it. He said, the general thinks it's a good idea. You can keep doing it, but keep me informed. Well, I breathed a big sigh of relief. 
that I wasn't court-martialed. And so then my buddies gave me theirs. They heard about it, and I'd come back, and there'd be a case of just bars from two or three guys pulling their rations. You know, Wrigley's double mint gum was a favorite, and and they give me their old handkerchiefs, take shirt sleeves for candy bags and shirt tails for parachutes. We ran out of stuff. And we, we went to Berlin, of course, immediately and gathered up all the mail and had two German secretaries to, to read it and answer the letters we couldn't. And the kids in Berlin heard we had a parachute, so they sent back the old ones for refills. And then not only that, some that didn't catch any would make their own. One little boy, Peter Zimmerman, he wrote me and says, look, he says, I'm nine years old, but my legs aren't as long as normal kids nine years old. I can't run very fast, and I'm not getting any of this stuff. He said, I almost got it today, but a bigger kid beat me to it. And he says, I saw the parachute. It made me a beautiful parachute, the strings the right length, and a map. He said, when you take off, after you unload your flower, come down the canal to the second bridge, turn right one block. I live in the bombed-out house in the corner. I'll be in the backyard every day at 2 o'clock. Drop it there. Well, I had a lot of these special requests. And the tower would let me in good weather, stay down low and fit me in later, and make drops. So I couldn't hit Peter Zimmerman. I kept missing him. I sure was following his good map. Finally, he wrote me a letter and said, look. He said, you're a pilot. I gave you a map. How did you guys win the war anyway? Well, we got to be good friends with Peter. I took a big bag and package of gum and candy to Berlin and mailed it to him in the mail. You could mail it in the city. Couldn't mail it across to East Germany, the city, and mail it. And he wrote some other good letters, and he needed some shoes. His dad and mom were killed during the bombing of Berlin, and uh, he was living with an uncle. And he needed some boots, and so we got him boots and sent him the boots in the mail. He didn't try and drop those, of course. And he finally became a, a, a candidate for adoption, and a family in Palm, Pennsylvania adopted Peter. Another letter, as an example, of a little girl wrote me. Her name was Mercedes. And she says, you're causing us a terrible problem. We live right near the airfield, Templehof, and, and we've got a bunch of white chickens. And they're not laying eggs anymore. And you come right over our place, and they think you're chicken hawks, and they've quit. They're losing their feathers. Well, for an old farm kid from Garland, Utah, when my buddies on Saturday would go fishing, I'd be cleaning out the white chicken coop. So I understood the chicken problem. The last paragraph from Mercedes was a payoff. She says, when you see the white chickens, drop it there. I don't care if it scares them. Well, I couldn't find them. I drop it all over the approach, and by that time, 22 schools in Chicopee, Massachusetts had an old abandoned fire station. And they had an assembly line, and they were sending over 800 pounds of stuff in big cardboard boxes every other day candy bars and Wrigley Spearmint gum and other gum manufacturers' gum, and parachutes ready to drop. We just cut the top, and my buddies were dropping all over the city, the squadron dropping all over the city, over radio fixes, churchyards, playgrounds, everywhere. Too big a crowd near the airfield, so we're dropping all over the city. So I said, guys, concentrate on the approach to hit Mercedes. We didn't hit Mercedes either. So I took a big package of gum and candy to Berlin and mailed it to Mercedes in November of 1948. So those are a couple of letters, thousands and thousands of letters that we received from kids in Berlin. Not too long after the airlift started, of course, it was getting a lot of press all over the world. And uh, the, the uh, 
people in New York wanted somebody to come back and, and tell them what, what it was like personally. And because of, of my experience with the dropping the candy bars, General Tunner called me in and said, hey, they want somebody to go back to, to New York and Washington and, uh, and tell a firsthand account of how it's going. This was in September, 48, so it hadn't been gone going that, that, that long. And so he asked me. Then I remember as I left his office, he yelled at me and said, Halverson, don't get the big head. And I said, I won't. I'm bald-headed. I'm pretty humble. And he said, okay. So he, uh, we came back to the States, brought back an airplane that was going to be overhauled anyway, and uh, came back to, to New York. And, and the main uh, program was We the People, one of the early well-known national television programs, We the People, and then many other uh, appearances. And then I got a call from uh, the president of the American Confectioners Association. So I'd like to take you to, to, to dinner at the Manhattan Hotel. Uh, I want to talk to you about something. So I worked the schedule, went with him. There were four forks with a plate. This From a farm kid, I went, wow, this is really fancy. I wonder what he wants. Well, anyway, he said, look, I, he asked me a few questions about the operation of Little Vittles. He said, how much this stuff can you use? And I just thought how many guys in the squadron and gave him some ridiculous number and he started to send it. Well, Swersey was a Hyler Candy Company executive and, and uh, he knew the president of the American Confectioners Association. He was one of the first to say, hey, we'll supply whatever you need. And the, all of the candy manufacturers and gum manufacturers started to send this stuff to Chicopee, Massachusetts to be assembled by the school kids there. They sent 15 documented tons of candy through Chicopee, and the and part of it was sent over by ship, and and six thousand five hundred pounds of candy bars was sent over by ship and rail to Rhine Mine in in December nineteen forty eight, two weeks before Christmas, and by that time we were dropping plenty. We took that hundred pounds of time into Berlin. I had a, a jailhouse, so it was partly empty, and I put that six thousand five hundred pounds in. Day before Christmas, we had a Christmas party over free Berlin. And the East Berlin kids were still writing. He says, hey, don't drop it over here. We're still getting some, but we'd like to be blockaded too if this is what it's going to be like. So those East Berlin kids were great. We got thousands of letters from kids that uh, received package of gum or candy from the air. And the kids in, in East Berlin were no different. They liked it even more than the West Berlin kids because they had it, didn't have it quite as tough right then because they had enough food in East Berlin. But they wrote me letters and said, look, hope you're not mad at us. We're, we're East Berlin kids. We can't help it where they put the border. Said, uh, we'd like the Americans. And we're coming over to West Berlin and we're catching some of these things that you mean to drop to the free West Berlin kids. But hope you're not angry because, oh, this is so good for us. And they said, but it'd be better even if when you come over East Berlin to land, you come over East Berlin to make your approach Drop it there. There's not so many people. And we'd really like that. And I said, why not? So I did. I started dropping over East Berlin. Every, almost every approach, not every approach, but frequently <clears throat> would drop over East Berlin. Came back from Berlin one day to Rhine Mine, and there was an officer meet the airplane. He said, Halverson, what are you doing over East Berlin? I said, I'm dropping to those nasty communist kids. And he says, you can't do that. It was Lieutenant Colonel Gilbert, who had known from Mobile. And I said, why not? The law of gravity is the same on both sides of the border. And he, he excused me for being impertinent. So that's not the problem. He said, problem is, 
that the State De- the Russians, the Soviets, have gone to the State Department and complained. It's a capitalist maneuver. It's a capitalist trick to influence the minds of the young people in their sector against them. And you can't do that. You've got to stop. It's airspace that's questionable. We get in real trouble with using the airspace. You've got to stop. Well, I've met people, kids that were in Berlin at that time, grown up, that have come out since and told me what it was like. One lady had escaped during the wall. She and her husband both got out and were city planners in West Berlin. And when they went back to West Berlin one of the times after the wall was up, it happened to be the same function. And she says, hey, who are you? And I says, well, I'll give her my name. She says, why did you quit dropping in East Berlin? And I was surprised. And she says, I was a little gal, and I caught 13 parachutes in East Berlin. And then you quit, and I had to tell her. But they, they were, they'd escaped, and they were city planners in West Berlin. I guess they're still there. Some of the letters uh, were from all, all areas of the city, and especially the hospitals. Of course, this was a time period when, when uh, the polio epidemic, they'd had a polio ep- epidemic in Germany, and they had at least two hospitals, big hospitals, with several hundred kids in them with polio. And, and one day I got a whole package of, of mail from the kids in the hospital. It had been collected by Mr. Mason, who was a public health, American public health official whose job it was to visit these hospitals and prioritize their needs from X-ray film to every, every, the kind of thing that they needed to help support the hospitals. And when he left the hospital, both of the hospitals, one day the kids gave him a big package of letters for me. And every one of them were thanking me for, for, for what we're doing, but, but in a very mild way, saying, we, we can't walk. We can't get out and catch this stuff. We can hear their airplanes. And, and, and the, the, but the doctors have promised us that they won't report you if you fly low over the hospital. And they'll go down and get the stuff. Well, the hospitals were located in a real tough place. It was a non-standard place for traffic control that, that I just couldn't work. So I thought, about that time, I got a big box full of bubble gum and a bunch of Hershey bars. And I thought, man, I'll just take this stuff. I'll have enough time between flights. And that time, we weren't flying as fast as often as we were before. And so I loaded up enough. I knew how many kids there were, and took all this bubble gum and and candy bars to the hospitals. And Mr. Mason met me, took me around. I couldn't blow the bubbles very well, so he he demonstrated these kids. All the time, they gave them a candy bar each and and bubble gum, and, and that was one of the most rewarding experiences I've, I've I've had in the airlift is to see these young kids and the appreciation in their eyes in the hospital situation for something so radical as a fresh candy bar, fresh chocolate from the United States of America when they had none, had, had, had none at all, and were on dried eggs and dried potatoes. And, and we did fly a lot of fresh milk for the youngest kids on the airlift. But it was a wonderful experience to, to be in the, with those kids in the hospital. The people, the Berliners, were so grateful. They were... The gratitude, it just get them so emotional they couldn't talk. They just tears would come in their eyes. They'd come out to the airfields. They'd come out the ramps. The little kids would bring flowers. The, the people would bring flowers. And in the middle of the winter, I don't know where they'd get them, but they'd bring, bring things to show their appreciation. And uh, it was just over, overwhelming 
the letters that they send, but in person, what they do. One little girl that came with her mother at Temple Off, she didn't know that I was a candy bomber. I just stand there by the airplane. And they, she came over, they'd have the escorts, and, and uh, her mother, the, both of them spoke a little English, and her mother says she has something that she wants to give you. It was normal that they would come to present something. She had a little teddy bear, and she handed it to me, and and it was it was not a new one. The elbows were worn, and and she says, uh, "I want you to have this. This is my teddy bear." She says it was with me in the bomb shelters during the war when you were dropping bombs, and it was with me in the final battle when the Russians and the Soviets overran Berlin. I was in the cellar, my teddy bear. And it's a good luck charm. And it'll bring you and your fellow flyers good luck. I, I could see how much meant to her. And I said, hey, you, you keep it. It'll be good luck for us. Keep it. I th- it's probably the only possession that she still had left. But she had tears in her eyes. But she says, no, you must take it. And I knew then that for her to be happy about her gift, that, that I would take it graciously. I flew with it in the cockpit. And it was there that day that it came head-on. Maybe the teddy bear was the reason that we didn't have a head-on creation. I don't know. But that's a symptom of how deep the feeling was from the people in Berlin. Those who were there then, that same feeling comes back. I was in Berlin a week ago in a meeting, and an older person stood up with tears in his eyes, told the people there how much it meant to him. He said, my parents would not have survived if it hadn't been for the airlift, and I wouldn't be here. That gratitude was the thing that caused us to fly day and night and the people on the ground to work day and night without complaint because it was for something that was appreciated. It was They wanted freedom more than enough to eat. And that knowledge made our problem flying day and night very small. Looking back uh, at the airlift and wondering what the influence was, I'm sure that that the post-war history would be different if it hadn't been for the airlift. That Berlin was the final point of where we draw the line, that you're not going, the Soviet influence was not going to go beyond or absorb Berlin. Uh, some people wonder, uh, say, well, what significance was this thing of little parachutes and candy? That's uh, insignificant. And it was in itself. But to me, as I recall and hear from the kids that grown up, it was a symbol of something from outside of this blockaded, this city under siege, that somebody knew they were there from somewhere else. They'd walk to school in the fog or in the clouds, and out of the cloud would come a parachute and land at their feet, and the letter would come. It was telling them that somebody was aware of what their problems were in a city under siege and that they cared for them. There was an external connection outside of this this wall of steel and tanks that surrounded the city. And it gave them a a feeling of self-assurance, of hope. And hope was the most important thing that a person can have in personal trouble in life, that, that somewhere there's hope for a better future. And I think that that part was a contributor to that. But the bigger left, the humanitarian effort in behalf of a former enemy 
was one of the greatest influences in bringing people together after a great war, a terrible tragedy. Working together again accelerated this process, brought the, the German people and the American, British, and French together quickly and galvanized their working as a team. And it changed post-war history. Without the airlift, the way it was carried out in the humanitarian way, post-war history would be very different today than it was then. In, in 1994, they had a, an exhibit, an international exhibit hall at Frankfurt Rhine Mine. And a lot of it was on the airlift. Uh, they had parachutes, candy bars hanging from the ceiling. And, and I went there for, for that event to open up this exhibit. And at the time, we were supporting Bosnia. The refugees were pushed out of their homes or in the mountains and the foothills and in the snow and trying to survive and live away from their residence. And, and it recalled to me the, the situation in Berlin during the blockade of Berlin. I went to, uh, to the Air Force there and asked, I'd like to fly one of these missions. I'd like to be with this modern crew in a modern airplane and make drops. They were dropping the, the food supplies. Of course, some were landing at Sarajevo, but at this time, when I was there, there was the fire, ground fire, and this thing where it was a real problem. And so they were dropping from the air, C-130s, mainly from the American effort. And uh, so I was, I was able, to, through the grace of, of the people at Rhine Mine, to, to be outfitted. I still had an ID card, of course, or retired, uh, able to fly in the airplanes. And we made a, up a bunch of... of candy bars and parachutes, just like old days. And uh, we had uh, about 20,000 pounds of food and blankets to drop in the mountains. And so we had a six-ship formation to Bosnia from Rhine Mine. And it really brought back old memories. A lot more sophisticated with the radar because we were going to make a night drop of 16,000 feet with all the lights out and just the radar man bringing us in over the mountains over this at least 30 miles from Sarajevo. And we had the package of little parachutes and candy bars tied to the back of the last pallet that was going out the back of that C-130. And, and when we opened those doors and pushed it out, we had a lanyard on it. And out they went, and this lanyard opened up the box, and little parachutes came out. I don't know how many they found, but I'm sure they found some. There were thousands of refugees in the mountains waiting for those blankets and food. And I hope a little surprise package a candy bar on the end of a parachute like it was for the kids in Berlin that found a child somewhere in Bosnia without a home, without enough to eat. In my view, uh, the heroes of the airlift uh, were civilian or military. The civilians were the Berliners. They slept in bombed-out buildings without enough heat, without lights except for a few hours very early in the morning, and without enough food. They said, we'll never give up. We don't care if we don't have enough to eat, like the children of the fence. We won't give up. And they didn't. And without that determination and, and that, that commitment, the, the airlift wouldn't have worked. The, the military heroes were not the pilots, in my view. The military heroes were, were the aircraft mechanics. Without them keeping these airplanes flyable, we wouldn't be going anywhere as pilots. 
you'd taxi out to take off at Rhine Mine in the middle of wintertime and the snow blowing horizontal. And these aircraft mechanics were out there in the open field, sometimes with a canvas and a wooden frame to cover them. There wasn't room in the hangars. They were full too. But they had to work out in the open field. And they were doing that, in, in, I'm sure, at Fosberg and Sully and Wiesbaden, fingers freezing to the head bolts. And those guys kept the airplanes running. Of course, the, the security police and the cooks and everybody else had a part. But to my mind, the dedication of those those aircraft mechanics were the real heroes. The single military guy, of course, was General Tunner. Without him, it would have been disaster. He was a genius at, at, at airlift and planning airlift. And General Clay, without him, he was on the spot to begin with, long before Tunner got there. He knew what had to be done. He was a real, the real hero, military hero of the post-war era. And bringing on board the determination of the coalition of British, French, and Americans to support whatever it took, the determination to stay in Berlin. So General Lucius Clay was one in a million. He was, the, when I said military, he was a military man and an ambassador and a great, servant of our country and the cause of freedom. Of all, he has to be the preeminent person in my view. That was Colonel Gail S. Halverson. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.